reading from selected texts of Exodus 5 and 6. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw. But require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today, as before? So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? You have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. The word of the Lord. light in the darkness, my God, that is who you that together one last time. Way, way make a miracle work, promise keep, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. And let's pray together. We have lots of challenges this morning that are acute for us. We've got noise in the background we've never had before, but there's problems around the world that exceed that, right? And I want to pray right now as we're still standing. Let's pray for our sisters and brothers that are having church this morning on the Gulf Coast around New Orleans as they await uh, a devastating storm. Uh, they're living in fear right now while we're in this calm, even with that noise. Uh, and let's pray for our sisters and brothers in Afghanistan as well as that chapter uh, takes new turns this week. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful today for all that you're doing in our lives, and we lift up our friends and neighbors uh, on the Gulf Coast. Father, give them relief, give them a place to go, give them safety, give them confidence that you are present among them. Give them everything they need to weather this storm. We lift them up for your protection now. And Father, we lift up uh, our friends and neighbors in Afghanistan too, our service troops, our allies. Uh, Father, what a fraught situation that is, so dangerous so hard, so hard for families back home that await their loved ones return. So Father, we pray too that you would give confidence in your presence. We love you, but we know that we only love because you loved us first and you love us more than we could even love each other. We thank you for that. Love on those people now in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated in his presence. Grace City, I'm so thrilled to have you out here this morning. Apologize for the noise in the background. You just, when you have outdoor church in the city, you just never know, Corey Barnes, you just never know. But I'm grateful for this beautiful uh, venue that we have. 
Grateful for our visitors here today. Coming in for a baby dedication. Amen. How cool is that? And uh, that's going to be, that'll be at the end of our service. We're so thrilled, thrilled to have that. Now, we've had a summer uh, of uh, working through the next chapters of our mission, which is to reconcile people to God and to one another. And we've had workshops, and we've had um, uh, seminars, and we've uh, brought uh, venues together where uh, the more marginalized can speak to the more dominant and the more powerful, and that is so critical. And in the wake of that, uh, for the last three weeks within our series, The Power of Stories, I've been um, uh, called to deliver a series of sermons that speak to those issues of reconciliation that still uh, meet such resistance in our world today. So I want you uh, to open your Bibles at home. You'll see on the screen at home, you'll see uh, lots of our text. But here, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 5, particularly. And you can follow along. Ling read some of that. Ling, thank you very much. Um, but I want to remind you, Grace City, that Grace City Church and our sister and brother churches around the world, we own a colossal mission in this season. And the resistance and the fatigue that corresponds to the, to the pursuit of reconciliation looms larger by the day. You might think in our world, in this world, we, in 2021, it would start to get easier, but it's actually getting harder. Now, it's not that the promised land of a unified, thriving humanity is unclear. We talked about that two weeks ago. But like the 10 spies uh, in Numbers 13 and 14 and the masses that they influenced, the human inclination to fear and to hatred and to return to bondage, return to old ways that keep us enslaved, it remains stronger than our call to sacrificial love. So the resistance is huge. And we talked about that extremist sort of love that Stephen showed last week in Acts chapter 6 and 7. Now, Grace City, the, the church is always at risk of forgetting our assignment on earth. And Corey Barnes is going to preach about that in a couple of weeks in our next series, which is the State of Grace series that we do annually. But forgetting is the number one sin of the Old Testament. I mean, don't trust me. Just go back to the Old Testament. Do your research. Forgetting God's call, forgetting God's mercy, forgetting his grace is the number one sin. And we forget our assignment on earth to reproduce on earth as it is in heaven where God's unified humanity comes together, and we see the result of that coming in heaven in Revelation chapter 7 at the very end of Scripture. So this morning we open the Scriptures to a story from the beginnings of God's people, the resistance they met, and that we still meet in our efforts for reconciliation, and we meet it both on the inside of our own souls, and we meet it particularly outside in the community that we all seek to bring together and to thrive in. The experience of the Israelites in Exodus chapter 5 illustrates, Grace City, an evil that still looms over us, and it leads to my title this morning, and I'm still drawing my titles, Brendan, from sci-fi stories that I read as a youth this week, and you can, anybody can tell me the author of this particular reference to a sci-fi story wins a prize at the end of the service, just come up and tell me. But this, this week, it's something wicked still comes this way. Something wicked still comes this way. And... You know, maybe once a year, maybe twice a year in preaching, I, my, the points that I use to uh, illustrate uh, are actually negative points rather than positive points. This is one of those times. This is one of those messages where I want to illustrate 
particularly on the part of Pharaoh, three negative things that still occur in our culture, in our community, and inside our own hearts today. Two years ago in August, um, on this very week, uh, and that was our last COVID-free summer. Anybody remember that kind of summer? It's kind of weird, huh? Two summers ago, I took a pilgrimage uh, of sorts, uh, and it was prodded by the opening of the Equal Justice Initiative's new museum and memorial in Montgomery, Alabama. So I toured through the civil rights sites of Atlanta uh, to Birmingham to Selma, where I walked the bridge to, and before ending in Montgomery, Alabama. And in Montgomery, which is a sh city that is shaped by slavery, uh, I found the Equal Justice Initiative's two newest achievements. And this, the first was the, the soul-shattering uh, reveal of the National Peace and Justice Memorial, which is also called the Lynching Museum, where I spent a day uh, in a life-changing situation just to be witness to that. And then the most profound content in the best museum I have ever been to, I highly recommend you visit Montgomery, the Legacy Museum, which aims, here's its mission, are you ready? Aims to tell the history of enslavement and its evolution and its evolution. Are you with me? Can you, can you handle that this morning? This is hard. It was both uh, a day in Montgomery, it was both heavy and freeing. And Corey, it wasn't unlike any Good Friday that we celebrate every year where we experience the joy of our salvation in Christ alongside the weight of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. That is a day of mixed emotions, and so was this trip for me. But I learned a way of thinking, Grace City, as a human being and as a pastor in a multicultural church that helped me comprehend how to talk about the 400-year-long racial division that we still have in this country, that we still have here in Baltimore. And here it is. And these are the words of Brian Stevenson. Slavery has not ended. It has just evolved. Well, that's pretty heavy to take on this morning. So I want to invite you to take that on and just try it on and see if you can deal with it. Our tendency, particularly for people who look like me, is to get defensive and say, no, it's gone. It's not, it's not about me anymore. That was back then. And I want you to try to, to, to get inside this, this um, idea of the evolution of slavery. We're going to see it in the scriptures. Grace City, if, if we're going to reckon with our history of racial injustice, we must gain a biblical understanding that addresses its ongoing presence. Otherwise, uh, life would, would be so different, it is still present. And if we can own it consistently and fight it until we finish with it finally, this, the, the, then, then we can actually gain victory in this. And I will say this at, at the beginning, the solution does not lie in some past America. In fact, the church must be able to ask with people of color, when was America great? When was America even better for black people or Latino people or Asian people or women or lots of people groups in this country who have been marginalized throughout our history? And if we can learn to ask that question alongside all of our sisters and brothers, then we can begin, begin to get inside racial division. And I wanna say at the beginning too, if this makes you uncomfortable or tired, I hear you. But let me remind all of us, including myself, we have never in this country honestly and wholly addressed the slaughter of indigenous people. We have never addressed the othering of pe multiple people groups who don't look like me, who don't speak my language. And, and, and 
that, that still rears, our heads, rears its head today, and we don't deal with it until there's some other trauma, some other killing, and then we deal with it for a few weeks, and then we let it slide away. And it's the church's responsibility to say, don't let it slide. Let's fix this, finish with this once and for all. The church has got to lead the way. And we have never honestly addressed the enormous damage done during two and a half centuries of the enslavement of black people. So remember this morning, uh, an African-American folk saying that says this, our God can make a way out of no way. And that's where we're headed this morning. And scripture supplies the guide. Here's what I mean. <clears throat> Spirituality and economics, human economics, go together in the Bible. There's lots of teaching on both and much fruit when we let them inform one another. Grace City, when we open our Bible, we immediately, in the very beginning, com co um, confront the matter of slavery. And we mustn't allow our tendency to spiritualize things, to mute the lessons on how we treat one another, how we live together, how we can indeed thrive with one another in God's economy, not particularly our economy. So thanks, Ling, again for reading Exodus 5. Uh, here's some background on Exodus 5. In chapters 1 through 4 of Exodus, we learn what sort of God the God of Israelites is. He makes promises. He can be trusted. He's present with his people. He is, as we just sang, he is the way maker. He can even make his enemies do his bidding when they act against him. So in Exodus 1 through 4, while Pharaoh is having Hebrew baby boys cast into the Nile, his daughter, Pharaoh's daughter, pulls a baby boy out of the Nile and gives him a scholarship in the palace to grow up and live. And that means that one day that baby boy, Moses, will grow up and he's going to come back to haunt the Pharaoh. This is God's cosmic judo, and he can do this kind of thing. The news of God's revelation has reached the Israelites that are held in slavery in Egypt, and when they hear God's message to them, look at chapter 4, verse 31, right before chapter 5, the very end. It says, when they hear God's message, it says they believed, and when they heard the Lord was concerned about them, oh my goodness, and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. I love that. It's a textbook response of faith, isn't it? And so we enter chapter 5 of Exodus full of hope. And verse 1 says this. Take a look on your screens at home. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival. And you can feel the enthusiastic faith of Moses and Aaron who are now 80 and 82 years old. Anybody here that old? I'm probably the closest. And they're bounding up the steps of the palace to go to Pharaoh and say, we've heard from the Lord, and he wants you to let us go so we can go and worship. And it is a huge ask, but they're enthusiastic and they're confident because they have the Lord on their side. So they stand before Pharaoh and they deliver this call, and here's where we see the first of three wicked responses of Pharaoh that still live on today in our community, in our culture, around the world. And they live on in our hearts as well, and I hope you'll take the opportunity to see where you might uh, have some of this still going on inside of you. And here's the first wicked response of Pharaoh, and it's simply this, pretension, pretentiousness. Pretension, his, his pretentious self-importance would not allow him to consider the Lord. Look at verse 2. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. I will not let Israel go. Which frankly, is not an unexpected statement if you're king of the largest country, the most powerful country at the time, and, and the people of that country treat you like a deity. It's, it's not unfair, probably, for him to say, I, 
why should I obey his voice? I'm a god. I can rightfully enslave you people. Pharaoh's pretension does not allow him to understand who he is dealing with, the God of the universe. And this happens to us. And by the way, it's a mirror of the temptation, and Corey talks about this often. It is a mirror of the temptation from that snake, Satan, in the garden in Genesis 3. Take a look on it on your screen, where the snake comes to Adam and Eve and says, eat the fruit, eat it. Your eyes will be open and you will be like God. This is the temptation all of us face at various seasons of our lives. So church, it's not just unbelieving kings that can be uh, uh, subject to this. Jesus takes on the Pharisees for the same kind of pretension, Pharaohs and Pharisees. I play, all of us play little Pharaohs throughout our lifetime. And I've learned when, when I do that, there's a price to pay. There's cost to that. But when that kind of pretension, pretentiousness, is exhibited on behalf or on the scale of government, when, when a dominant power considers itself superior and therefore righteous in oppressing others, it causes damage that lasts for centuries, 400 years in the case of the Israelites and beyond. Two weeks ago, we talked about they went to the brink of the promised land. They get out because of the plagues. They're on the brink. They can go in, and they say, let's go back to Egypt. It was easier there. Imagine. And we do the same thing. Because similarly, the pretension in our past history here in America, the pretension of white supremacy was necessary to justify enslavement in America. How would you do it otherwise? How could you do it? Even the abolitionists, many of whom fought to end slavery, they didn't believe in racial equality. Did you know that? And, and after emancipation in 1865, black Americans believed that they would receive the vote. They believed they'd receive the protection of the law and land. They believed they'd enjoy full opportunity as Americans. But they were denied all these things because the pretentious ideology of white America would not value them as equals. It would not. So it couldn't happen. And to this day, Gray City, that same wickedness still comes our way. Our unwillingness in our hearts to recognize the wrongfulness of racial hierarchy and our, and our own role in sustaining the myth of hierarchy of race, white superiority, it leaves racial division firmly in place. And Grace City, I'll say it again, it's the church that must finally lead the way toward racial unity. It's the church who must lead the way. We must insist, along with God's word, as we're going to see this morning, that society enter the promised land of human unity. This is what God calls us to. It is clear in the history of Scripture and in the history of the church. It's not, it's not a myth. It's not somehow unclear. God has called us to this. And the longer we linger in the wilderness of division, the more severe the consequences for ourselves and for our country, for our world. Well, pretentious people, Corey, respond to God's word in different ways. And here, Pharaoh doubles down on his, his pretentiousness with a second wicked way that is still practiced at the expense of the powerless, and it's this. It's profitability. Pharaoh is all about the prophets, and we live in a world that's all about the prophets. Somebody say amen, because we do. Great city, the predatory economy of, of Pharaoh required the labor of those who were enslaved for the great building projects of the state. And get this, it included storehouse cities where all the grain of the country would be stored, so Pharaoh had control of the food that was required by the population. And when you have control of the food, you have control of the population. So here in chapter 5, Pharaoh perceives that Yahweh is undermining his workforce. Look at verses 4 and 5. Pharaoh says, 
Moses and Aaron, guys, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to their work. I have so many slaves that need to get back to work, and you are stopping them from their work. They're distracted. They're cutting profits, and they need to be refocused. This is Pharaoh's priority. And he's hostile because he's being asked to give up a labor force, John Crooks, of 600,000 men. Give them up. His slave, his slave force is the engine of his wealth, of Egypt's wealth. Why on earth would he give that up? And I, I want to make sure we don't forget our legacy in the same way. Because the enslaved bodies of black people were assigned monetary value in the United States based on gender and age and childbearing uh, capability and strength. And their labor fueled massive economic growth and wealth accumulation during the 19th century. It built the road for the Industrial Revolution. And today, today, this very day, slavery, it's an easily discovered, though largely ignored, foundation of this nation's wealth and prosperity. And more and more institutions are doing the research to find that out. And still today, many seek profits and, and, and lack accountability on the backs of the oppressed. I will say this, I, I was so um, hopeful in the wake of, of two summers ago, in the wake of George Floyd's murder last summer, um, and, and America's 50 largest companies pledged, are you ready? Pledged $49 billion to address racial inequality. And I said, wow, it, it makes you feel good, doesn't it? But then you look again and you look deeper and you see that 90% of that amount, 90% of that amount is allocated to loans and investments that they can profit from. And no one, no one is tracking the other 10% of their promises. No one's tracking. So in Exodus 5, back to our chapter, driven by profit and pretense, Pharaoh is determined to drive the words of the Lord out of the consciousness of the people. So he devises a formula to make it even harder. Look at 7 through 9. They are meant to make bricks. And there's two big ingredients in bricks, one of which is straw. And he decides, we're going to take away the straw, one of two critical ingredients in the manufacture of bricks, and we're going to tell them to add gathering straw to their labor, to their task, while keeping the same quota of bricks. Does this sound familiar? Make it harder, but keep the same quota. He shouts in verse 9, take a look. Make the work harder for the people. Why? So they will keep working and pay no attention to lies. Distract them from the freedom they're being called to and get them back to work and make it harder for them. So now they not only have to make bricks, they have to source the bricks. This is Pharaoh's priority. He wants them to ignore Yahweh, just as he does. He wants to ensure profit profitability, because that's where he stands. And he validates this now with a final um, wicked way that I, I think will bring it home for all of us in a big way. It's a broad emotional defense mechanism that remains pervasive and poisonous today. I'm going to speak somewhat as a, a psychotherapist more than a pastor for a moment because this third wicked way is projection. Somebody say projection. And church, you know the setup. We do this on the playground. On the playground, we project when somebody says something critical to you and you say back to them, I know you are, but what am I? You throw it right back at them. Or you say, so's your mama. You throw it right back at them. You deflect it and give it back to them. Projection simply means deflecting flaws in oneself or any criticism from the outside by accusing somebody else of exactly the same thing. And we see it all the time. And we ought to be aware of it. Recently, it's frankly become an art form. 
where the clear shortcomings of one leader are immediately ascribed to a competitor. So the dishonest leader calls their competitor lying. The corrupt leader commits a crime and calls their opponent crooked. The erratic leader calls the other leader unstable. Now look at verse 8. Pharaoh calls them this, verse 8 and 17 and 18. They are lazy. That's why they're crying out. And then again in 17 18, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. Now get back to work. Does this sound familiar in our history? It's the same trope. It's the same lie that's used against every minority group throughout our history of the world, especially African Americans throughout history. And projection like this, church, comes with a checklist. You mistreat the worker. You increase the quota and, and uh, deny them resources, decrease resources. You call them lazy or incapable, and then you beat them, and then you kill them. And it's all justified. But where is the actual laziness in this chapter? Where's the laziness in the enslavement of the Israelites? Where's the laziness in oppression and injustice in this scenario? Of course, the laziness belongs to Pharaoh and the, and the Egyptian leadership who want to avoid real work while retaining power and privilege on the backs of the Israelites. Of course, it, they're the ones accusing of laziness when it exists in them. And this same kind of wickedness is projected to every marginalized people group in American history that has suffered through unjust treatment at the hands of the establishment. Indigenous people know it well. Asian people know it well. Latino people know it well. And when it comes to the enslavement of black Americans, listen to me, the lasting evil wasn't the violence. That was acute evil. But the lasting evil, the chronic evil, is the fiction still projected onto black people that they are somehow not equals of white people that they are lazy, less evolved, less human. Even written into law at one point, they are actually three-fifths human. Did you know that was written into law? They're less capable, less worthy, less deserving, less than, somehow, white people. And that toxic projection lives on to this day. It's evolved. Of course it's evolved. In Slavery 101, back in the, uh, uh, at the Constitution establishment, in order to enslave people under the equality principle in our Constitution, you have to say they're less human. There's no other way when you say all men are created equal and we have slaves, there's no way to do that except to say that the slaves are less human. There's no other way to do it. In, in slavery, uh, after emancipation in 1863 and 1865, after Ju the Juneteenth, the 1st, this is Slavery 201. In order now to terrorize and lynch them, you have to lie and say they're savages. But who is actually savage? It belongs to the, to the projector. In the 20th century, Slavery 301, to make laws that segregate them from yourself, you lie and declare them less worthy. But who is actually unworthy in this scenario? Who? And now in the last 50 years, since Dr. King, in order to limit their participation in society, you call the nonviolent violent because that's what you are. You limit their vote and you say that it's not really happening. You limit their wealth to subordinate them and assume that they are destined for, uh, for substandard schools and substandard housing and substandard jobs. And then you call them less capable and that's what they deserve. And then you target them for incarceration and you say it's because they're less civilized. And it's full circle. It's all about projecting lesser than onto a people group. And it's really your responsibility. It's you, really my responsibility. I'm the one who's being less than human in that, all those scenarios. 
And that's what keeps slavery evolving. Church, the inhumanity of it all belongs to me. It belongs to me. And th this, this is the burden in America that people of color bear every day that they walk in this city, this country, this world. They have to navigate around these presumptive lies. And it's exhausting. It's not only exhausting people of color, it's exhausting the entire community because we can't stand it much longer. It's, it's hurting all of us. And in America, to this day, no one is yet free. Not white people, not people of color, no one is yet free from the threat that is created by our history of racial inequality. Now, those are my three points. It's pretension, it's profitability, it's projection. And, and you might say, well, Bob, why are you preaching this? Here's why. Because it's become so well established, these three wickedness forms, that it's become normal. And we got used to it, church. The church, though our assignment is clear for racial unity, you cannot do our assignment here. What's our assignment, Corey? It's um, reconciling people to God and to one another. You cannot do adequately and effectively and, and excellently, you cannot do reconciliation work until there's consistent truth-telling and the provision of platforms for the marginalized to speak regularly to the privileged. And it's so hard for people who look like me to recognize, much less acknowledge, the evolution of slavery and oppression. But when we can affirm that this legacy actually retains power today, when we can surrender to that idea and get involved in fixing it, when we can affirm it, it can really be liberating. We can thrive in the acknowledgement and render a glimpse of the promised land that God calls us to, of racial unity. We have a lot to learn. We're going to make lots of mistakes. We're going to bump into each other. We did all summer long. We bumped into each other, didn't we, Kathy McClain? We, we, we won't make progress in this arena, though, without making mistakes. But it, here's what it's about. It's about our humility. It's about our patience. It's about our courage to work it through and not get tired and not let it go and, and, and wait till the next trauma happens before we get upset again. It's about being consistent. And we cannot retreat, not as the church. God never says retreat. There was a cost. There was a cost to leaving the edge of the promised land. Meaningful change is always uncomfortable. Write that down. Meaningful change is always uncomfortable. And it's human nature to, to want to stick with what's safe and familiar and defend it at all costs. But Scripture tells us, every, in both Testaments, in every chapter, Scripture tells us to do what's uncomfortable. And I, I want to just say this as an aside. If, if you want to talk about this and and ask questions with me because I'm the one preaching, please call me and let's have coffee together. We'll talk. We'll talk as brothers. We'll talk as sisters. But, but this is why as a pastor, and I'm not sure why it's controversial for me to say it, but I said it, I, I've said it numerous times from this pulpit, and I'll say it again. This is why I declare with much of the world that black lives matter. In the first place for me personally, I say that because it's clear that, it, that they haven't mattered in the 400 years of our history since they arrived on the shores. And it just seems to me like the church ought to, ought to stand up for that. That's personal. But perhaps more importantly this morning, I say that because I want to line up with the scriptures from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And I know you want to line up with the scriptures too. Because the scriptures tell us from the Old in this chapter to the New Testament that the most afflicted, the most afflicted people uh, in any given scenario uniquely matter to God every time. 
In Exodus 1 through 5, as we've seen, such an affirmation recognizes the biblical insistence for the dignity of those who are deemed less than human by the powerful and the privileged. In this case, the Israelites versus Pharaoh. The lives of oppressed people have distinctively mattered since our emancipatory God took the enslaved of Pharaoh and said, these are my chosen people, my firstborn son. They matter. Second, I want to line up with Jesus, who very much like Moses did with Pharaoh, often took on the Pharisees. Pharaoh and Pharisees. Interesting root word, right? I, I took to calling them in my preparation Pharisites because they suck the life out of the community. Try that one on, Alan. Pharisites. Write that down. A brand new word from Bob. But he took on, Jesus took on the Pharisees over and over again. Look at Luke 11, chapter, um, verses 41 to 42. Jesus said to them, you Pharisees, you clean the outside, but inside you're full of what? Greed and wickedness, just like Pharaoh. You're full of greed. You want profit on the backs of the poor. And he says this, as for what is inside you, here's, here's how you clean it up. Here's how we clean it up, church. Be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Right now you give God a tenth, and that's a good thing. But you neglect justice and the love of God, he says. These are Jesus' words. These aren't Bob's words. So what do we do this day, this week? And I want to say it. Here it is. Be like Jesus. And you ought to throw up your hands and say, how do we do that? And here's it. You learn to surrender yourself. He did. You tell the truth of history. And this week, for the rest of this summer and on into the fall, rededicate ourselves as a church to an unyielding effort to bring godly change to this arena. How? Well, it begins, and I'm going to end with this. It begins with Paul's instruction to the church in Philippians 4. And when in doubt, church, about how to go about the issue of reconciliation, when in doubt about your next steps, when in doubt about what do we do as a church for this mission, start here every time. It's both lovely and it's dangerous. Are you ready? Chapter 4 of Philippians, verses 5 to 8. In your relationships with one another, the Apostle Paul writes, in your relationships, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What does that look like? He goes on. Who being in the very nature God did not consider, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped or to be used to his own advantage, the NIV says, but rather made himself nothing. Do you remember Corey Barnes teaching us 10 years ago that when we raise our hands in worship, it doesn't mean anything other than we surrender. We surrender. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, humbled himself by being obedient even to death, even to his death on a cross. This is where we land today, this morning, to be like Jesus, to surrender our own defensiveness, to surrender our pretentiousness, to surrender our desire for profits, to surrender our capacity to project our own flaws onto others. We surrender it. And as I pray, and as the worship team comes up while I pray, I want to say this. Come on up, worship team. Bondage happens in a lot of ways. And I preach today about community bondage that still exists in this world. But bondage happens in our own hearts for a variety of reasons. Take these same principles, and as we go to prayer and as we sing, ask God to free you from the bondage, whatever it is in your story. I'm going to ask him to free us next week from that sound over there because that's really bondaging me. But ask God to work on your own 
your own hearts. Work on your own pretentiousness. Work on your own self, self-aggrandizement. Work on your own tendency. Work on my tendency to project onto others what truly belongs to me. God, let me surrender that. Can we pray about that in our own hearts today? That God would free us in every way, individually and corporately. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for this powerful chapter in Exodus. It is uncomfortable, Lord. It is not something we probably love to hear on a Sunday morning. But you give us your word for a reason, to grow us up to be more like your son, to grow us up to be like Jesus. Father, we pray today that in each one of our individual stories, you will heal us and free us from bondage. Free us from habits, from sin that takes our attention off of you, that breaks relationships with our loved ones. And Father, beyond that, we pray for our community here in Baltimore, that you would take us and heal us, that you would allow us to surrender to your spirit, that you would give us the grace to be gracious like your son was to us, to forgive and to move on, to to, to make forums where we can talk to each other honestly, Father, make us truth tellers. Truth tellers, telling the truth, speaking the truth in love. We've talked a lot about that this summer too. Father, we we cannot do this without you. We can't be free. That's clear in your scriptures. We're only free because we're free in you. We are free indeed because of you. So Father, we ask now as the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians that we would plant our feet firmly within the freedom for which Christ has set us free. Inwardly, outwardly, corporately. We give it all back to you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand and worship together, and then we'll be back with some very special events.